Welcome to the Nerd of the Rings podcast. To get the latest Middle-Earth-related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerdofthering's. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerdofthering's. I have a very special guest today with me. Um, it is Corey Olson, as you may know him as the Tolkien professor. Um, he's also the founder and president of Signum University and the Mythgard Institute. So he's been doing online education since before it was cool to do online education. Um, so welcome, Corey. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are welcome. Really fun to talk to you. Really appreciate the the content that you create. I'm a oh, big fan of uh, you know sort of YouTube Tolkien uh, content creators and stuff, and the stuff that you do is really good. Oh, thank you. Well, likewise, I'm also a big fan of your work, and uh, um, specifically the Tolkien Professor podcast. I I love uh, turning that on for my commutes. Um, you're doing kind of an interesting uh, project with the uh, the uh, film film. Um, yes. Right now. So tell us, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. Some film has been a lot of fun. So uh, people have been following my podcast for a long time might remember that way back like 2012, early 2012, uh, I started doing a podcast series called Riddles in the Dark when the Peter Jackson Hobbit films were just coming out. Right. And the whole idea there was that uh, we were, uh, you know, my, 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 co-hosts and I were talking through adaptation challenges. We were thinking, we were excited about the idea of The Hobbit being adapted. We were thinking through, like, you know, th thinking through the book, thinking through the different challenges for adaptation. Like, well, how would you do this scene? Oh, but, you know, and there's this issue for trying to translate from book to film. And how, you know, how do we think they're going to address that? So we, it was a combination of ourselves kind of brainstorming and thinking through the adaptation challenges, which we found a lot of fun. And then, of course, also speculating about what Peter Jackson would actually do and then analyzing it when he actually did it. And that whole, so we did that for three years um, through the whole Hobbit film thing. Um, and we found that that was almost entirely a really rewarding and positive experience. Mm -hmm. uh, the only downside uh, to that experience was the actual movies, which were a terrible disappointment, right? <laughs> so uh, like we, we, we had these wonderful ideas about adaptation <laughs> and, P and Peter Jackson was unfortunately, apparently not listening to our not podcast. To the podcast. Yeah, that was his mistake, I think all <laughs> along. People say, oh, the problem was splitting into three films. No, no, the problem was he just it wasn't listening to our genius ideas about what he should have <laughs> done. Um, it did create some 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 really kind of funny moments. In particular, it really skewed my immediate reaction and experience of watching the films because mm. we'd done so much speculation and thinking about this that there were like a whole bunch of very specific things that I was looking for. Like at the end of every episode, we ended with a particular multiple choice question. Like, mm. do we think, you know, w there's this issue. He's got to address this. Do we think that the films are going to do A, B, C, or D? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they were often very specific things. Uh, and so I remember in particular, uh, one of the ones which was, which led uh, me to a slightly embarrassing situation. Uh, it was, um, we were talking about the death of, the, uh, were we going to see, so the, our, our, our question was, will we see the decapitated head of Thror mm. on screen at any yeah. point? Uh, you know, in the Hobbit film. Um, and I voted yes, that yeah. we would. My prediction was that you we called would. it. Yeah, I called it. And so in the film, like when they do the Battle of Azanul Bazaar and Azog holds up the head of Thror, I actually like I, I couldn't help myself. I actually went, yes, 
like <laughs> there in the theater and everyone in the like theater like looks at me like what is wrong with this guy that's, that's the bad guys <laughs> right? that is not the appropriate reaction to the decapitation of thorin's grandpa you know like that's just not what you're supposed to do anyway so that was kind of funny but anyway so so as i said the downside you know what, what we felt at the end of this process was okay Thinking through adaptation in this way, it was a really wonderful way to engage with The Hobbit, basically, to kind of think through what's going on in The Hobbit. Whenever you're trying to, because the act of translating from book to screen, it makes you think about things from a new angle. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a really kind of fresh way to approach the text yeah. uh, because, you know, you like, so for instance, um, when, um, when you have to answer questions like, well, okay, like during this scene, what does Bilbo's face look like? Like what facial expression? Mm -hmm. Tolkien doesn't tell us what facial yeah. expressions he's making. Like there's a lot of dialogue we don't get. Mm -hmm. Like how would they actually interact with each other? Like what, what would that scene actually look like? Yeah. Um, when you have to ask those questions, which you have to do when you're doing a visual adaptation, um, you, um, uh, you, you, it just, it forces you to then kind of approach the text and be like, well, okay. Like, what do we think is going on in Bilbo's head here? What what can we tell? What would we speculate based on what it says in the text? So yeah. so it was a really, really fun project. So I decided that I wanted to continue doing that. Um, yeah. But we just, so we decided to do it in a way that was completely untrammeled by reality, right? Like mm. we wanted to, you know, <laughs> like we, we didn't want, we, we didn't want any actual filmmaker messing up our, right. our no wonderful... budget concerns, none <laughs> exactly. of the, yeah. no budget concerns, nothing at all. <laughs> uh, so, um, so this, that's what led to the film film project. So the mm. film film project is a theoretical film adaptation of the Silmarillion and it's uh, and we decided and we decided this by the way six years ago so we were like way ahead of Jeff Bezos on this one yeah um um but um uh, but anyway we, we decided it would be an episodic serial um mm -hmm. uh you know a, a, you know a, a, exactly like the Lotron Prime thing is is supposed to be um yeah. and we would start it in the Ainulindale, and we would go all the way through. Like the, the goal, if we complete our crazy project, which if we do, will take like twenty-five years. Uh, <laughs> our crazy project is to plan the adaptation from the Ainulindale until Sam gets on the boat, basically. Like wow. so, you know, from beginning to end of the whole story. Um, wow. And um, so, by the time we're yeah. long gone, someone will have this wealth of it, information. Exactly. They can it's just go that. out and make it. That's it. It's so yeah. cool because not only, not only that's the thing, it's been a really vibrant uh, fan community project. It's turned out mm. to be. So, um, you know, initially it was mostly like we were just kind of speculating, you know, going yeah. through and talking it through on the podcast and speculating. Um, but we had a bunch of people who were really excited about the project from the beginning and began, we, we had some discussion boards and they really took off and people jumping mm -hmm. in, making suggestions and stuff. And so all the time it's gotten more elaborate. We've been doing this like six years now, as I said, yeah. we're in season five. Now we're planning season five. Um, we've split it up uh, into segments. And I should, I should have mentioned, by the way, of course, the reason we chose the Silmarillion is to ensure that we were untrammeled by reality mm, because of course yeah. the stuff that we're doing uh we felt fairly confident that <clears throat> nobody would be adapting in, in our life anytime soon yeah <clears throat> so we're not competing with anything yeah yet <clears throat> when we get to the second age looks like we will be but right yeah <clears throat> um but that was kind of the nice thing so 
um, the way that we split up the seasons. Season one uh, takes place is from the Ainulinda is just the Valar basically mm-hmm. from the Ainulinda Lay through to uh, the chaining of Melkor, mm-hmm. um, with the like big sort of turning point moment in the middle of the season being the destruction of the lamps. Okay, so yeah. it's primarily the drama of the Valar and their kind of coming to grips with Melkor's opposition, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we kind of. We, 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 we made some interesting changes there. And our, mm. our real focus was on, we wanted to have the focus be on the fall of Melkor. Um, so yeah. one of the major changes we made in season one uh, from what the Silmarillion, I mean, the Silmarillion text, Melkor is like the evil dark Lord from day one when he steps right. in uh, yeah. to Middle-earth. And we wanted to like, we wanted to, I mean, Tolkien does dramatize his fall, but it mm-hmm. it's quick. Like, I mean, it yes. happens in the Aino Lindale. Right. We, we, we wanted to draw that out in time so that we could draw more attention to the process of his fall. Like, why, mm-hmm. why, why does Melkor fall? Like, what is yeah. it with Melkor? Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. And again, that stuff is there in Tolkien, but it's not part of the drama of the Silmarillion. His opposition yeah. is kind of it's the initial really premise. Quick. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So we just that so that was a major change we made in season one. And so, by the way, one of the first lessons that we learn, of course, in doing this is that, you know, these like major deviations from the texts that people do when doing adaptations, like you can't help you it. You can't like, avoid it. Yeah, you can't avoid it. And, you know, right. there are these there are these decisions that you have to um, that you have to make. Yeah. Um, and so, and some of them that you just want to make in order right. to emphasize things from the text. Yeah. Um, so um, anyway, so that's. Um, so that was season one. And then we, you know, so season two was from the awakening of the elves through to okay. the darkening of Valinor. So it was mostly like the elves journey and then yep. the fall of the Noldor over the right. second half of the season. And, uh, and then season three was from basically the, the rebellion and the kinslaying at the beginning uh, mm-hmm. up through the uh, chaining of Mithros to the cliff and the rising of the sun. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then season four uh, was cut, was, basically of Beleriand and its realms. It started with mm. the rescue of Mithros yeah. and it ended with the final episode. It was kind of not a really climactic moment, but it was like the moment when uh, Glaurung escapes and runs amok for a little while uh, okay. and then gets yeah. chased back by Fingen. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was primarily about like, the primary drama of uh, season four was like the whole discovery of the truth of the kinslaying by Thingol and the other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and like the, you know, this whole, so it's mostly about the establishment of things in Balerion. And then season five goes from the arrival of men uh, in Balerion with Finrod and, and Beor meeting in episode one up through uh, the Dagor Bragalach uh, at the wow. end of the season, we do 13 episodes per season. So anyway, it's like yeah. at this point now in season five, we not only are just like kind of talking through the stories and thinking about adaptation, we've got people, uh, we've got people doing casting. We've got people doing script <laughs> outlines. Wow. We actually have scripts. People have written scripts uh, for, the, for, the, for the show. Uh, we have like costume design. We have set location scouting. We have, like, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole deal. Like we, we're, we're ready. Like you're ready to go. We're totally just, ready to yeah. go. All, all, all we need is a the permission that we would never get, and b many <laughs> millions of dollars in funding. But apart yeah. from those things, we're so ready uh, to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, anyway, I think it would yeah. be a, it would be a fun exercise to have someone uh, who knows the process to to look at what you guys have created and then say it would cost this many dollars to produce <laughs> right. the show that you're talking about. It would probably cost a lot of dollars considering whom we've casted. Cause we do like <laughs> fantasy casting. Like we actually have right. cast everybody. Yeah. Uh, and so like most people don't like, you know, uh, so who's I mean, the biggest star that you've, oh, you've cast? Oh, pff, there's so many, all uh, of them. 
just all, all of them, them. <laughs> all of them. I mean, like, I honestly, like we had the conversation this year, like we've got to be careful that we don't run out of actors, you know, like, like we've cast like so many uh, people. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, it's been, it's been, uh, cool. it's because I mean, we've, with some, some, we try not to cast like really important actors for really minor roles. Mm. Um, but just to, to give one little glimpse, uh, we, um, we did cast Tom Hiddleston, uh, as, uh, Fingolfin and we cast, ah. um, Richard Armitage. We, we, we gave him, I think we do this by vote. So we, yeah. we didn't totally control this. I do. We do have, uh, hosts do have veto power, but, um, okay. uh, but, but, uh, we, I try not to exercise that too much. I think uh, Armitage we gave Fanor. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. We, we did um, Armitage as Fanor, Hiddleston as uh, as Fingolfin, um, uh, and there's 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 a there's a there's a lot. You know, yeah. we're uh, we, we 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 of course we're, we try to be. <laughs> there there are some <laughs> threads that go through. Like you can kind of tell what shows the people who participate really watches. like. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, like we, we 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 had this run this one year. We're like, okay, we can only cast so many Vikings actors in one season. Okay, right. like let's uh, let's save some of these people. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so really this cool. was this was re- it's 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 a hugely fun project. You know, it's it's a complete, it's, it's, but it's a really interesting combination of you know, real c- close analysis of the text and really mm-hmm. thinking through the text. And with the Silmarillion in particular, it's a huge challenge because so much of the Silmarillion is told from 10,000 feet, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's like plot summary of right. like, and now in Beleriand, these things were happening. I was like, well, okay, but like, what are the people like? Right. You know, <laughs> how do they talk dialogue? to each other? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what conversations do they have? So of course we do get those like brief nuggets of dialogue mm-hmm. and almost all the dialogue in the Silmarillion we've included. Yeah. Right, and it's it's one of my favorite things when I'm reading the scripts that our our team has created. I love those moments when all of a sudden it float. We, you know, it's sort of the like the familiar text, like yeah, you know, suddenly pops up. You know, in right. the middle of the conversation, <laughs> um, it's really really neat. So. Uh, but anyway, cool. it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's really fun. And so it's both a really fun, you know, sort of critical and analytical mm-hmm. uh, project thinking about the text, um, as well as a really interesting creative project, you know, a kind of a creative engagement with the text. And it's something, yeah. something this part this whole process actually has really taught me a lot is kind of the, the value um, of that kind of creative engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really kind of made me reflect Tolkien himself was, that's what he did. Like he was all about the combination of like the creative mm-hmm. and the critical engagement with things. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say, you could easily make the case that The Hobbit is Beowulf fan fiction. Mm. You totally yeah. could make that case, right? right? Um, as is like the Rohan section of The Lord of the Rings, mm. totally Beowulf yeah. fan fiction. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and, you know, to say it that way is deliberately sort of to oversimplify it a little bit. But yeah, I'll just um, take that that clip and I'll post that online and yeah, just yeah, let, yeah, let people it. know that you think Tolkien is fan fiction. It is. It is. <laughs> he's doing fan fiction. He's doing fan fiction of Old Norse mythology. Yeah. He's doing fan fiction of Beowulf. I mean, go back to the Beowulf with the Hobbit thing. Right. Mm-hmm. The Beowulf manuscript, the unique Beowulf manuscript, has a hole burned in it, right? There's this one page that has a hole burned in it. And you can't read the text. Well, yeah. the bit that's burned out is so, as you know, many people know, and if you haven't read Beowulf, maybe you don't know this, but at the end of Beowulf, there's a dragon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Beowulf's final, you know, uh, you know, everybody knows about Beowulf and Grendel. Mm-hmm. Fewer people read all the way to the end of Beowulf and get to the dragon. A lot of the final boss stop yeah. with the first boss. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, um, 
the uh, the 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 final boss is a dragon, mm -hmm. and how the dragon incident begins is that the dragon is like sleeping quietly in his cave on his horde, and then a thief sneaks in mm. and steals a golden cup and when the thief steals the golden cup the dragon wakes up and he misses the cup and he gets really ticked off and he goes and he wrecks the local town okay now this should of course that's, sound yeah familiar, right incredibly and, familiar yeah. yeah but the thing that's missing the bit that's burned out that we don't know from the text is why did the thief do that who was the thief and yeah. why did he do this like what what th there's there's an explanation but we don't have it because it literally is gone uh, yeah. and it's a unique manuscript so one way i mean it's not the whole explanation right for the yeah Hobbit, but one thing that the hobbit does is it's tolkien's fun like fairy tale answer to that question like who was yeah. that thief and why and how did he get there and how did he end up stealing a golden cup well maybe it was something like this right so and that's very like a kind of fan fiction premise right yeah. to kind of complete a, you know someone else's story you know to fill in a you know a gap or a, an untold story mm -hmm. uh from there um, anyway, that was really um, uh, that that's that that kind of thing. But Tolkien did this all the time, yeah. all the time. Like his, uh, he preferred like when he was doing his own scholarly work, his preferred mode of doing scholarly work of 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 like laying out his scholarly ideas was through through his writing, was through his yeah. creative engagement with it. Um, he could, you know, to give another small example. In um, uh, in Beowulf, there's a, another line that a lot of people debate about. So this is near the beginning of Beowulf when Beowulf first shows up uh, on the 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 Danish shore and and is going to come to Hrothgar's hall. Mm -hmm. um, when he first shows up, he and his men first land on the coast, and there's a coast guard there, like a guy who's supposed to be watching out, you know, just in case anyone invades right. on a boat just yeah. like this, like this warrior <laughs> and his warriors coming it's and true. landing. Yeah. And so his job is to be like, are these guys a threat? Like, should I be sounding the alarm? Should I be lighting the beacons here? Or what do I do? <laughs> um, so he goes and he talks to Beowulf. Um, and it's his call as to whether or not he like sounds the alarm or what does mm -hmm. he do? Or puts him under arrest or, or, or whatever. And he decides that he likes Beowulf and he trusts Beowulf. So he's going to let Beowulf come. He's going to lead Beowulf back and he's going to let him keep his weapons and stuff, which is a big mm. deal. Right. Yeah. Um, so he then delivers this line, which Anglo-Saxon scholars debated for a really, really long time, like exactly what, that line meant you know mm. how what's the best way to translate that line yeah tolkien had an opinion about how that line should be translated and how he wanted to translate it is the line he gives that line word for word his translation of that line word for word to hama when hama mm. is deciding whether or not to let gandalf in with his staff right yeah the, the thing that hama says when hama gives Gandalf the green light, right. To go in with the staff. Uh, and he says like, you know, but in doubt, a man of worth will, you know, will decide with, I, I'm forgetting the exact line off the yeah, top of my yeah. head. Um, but that line, that's exactly how Tolkien argues. So like basically his yeah. con contribution to the scholarly debate was not, he didn't like write an article about right. it. <laughs> instead, he just put it in the Lord of the Rings. Like that's, you know, that's instead, cool. he, you know, he wanted to like, envision the whole situation. So mm -hmm. he creates this situation in which Hama is in a very similar situation with Gandalf uh, you know, and the others uh, and delivers exactly the same line. So the whole scene works like a really, um, uh, a really in-depth 
analysis essentially yeah. of that Beowulf line. But of course, it, it's not like official scholarship, but this is right. how Tolkien thought. This is how he worked. So it's incredible. So this kind <laughs> of creative engagement, I, you know, I've come to not only value it more for myself, but to realize, yeah, this is kind of like Tolkien did this all the time. Yeah. This is exactly the kind of thing that Tolkien did all the time. So very cool. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I didn't realize I knew that, you know, the dragon came into the Beowulf story. I did not realize that uh, I either I never knew or I forgotten that it was because of a, a thief stealing a cup. That's very interesting. Yeah. The golden cup is right out of there. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. Absolutely. Um, so, so you're cut. We're, we're kind of on the topic of adaptations here. So I know, you know, I've kind of keeping an eye on the chat here and I know, you know, sooner or later it's going to come up. So we'll yes. just go ahead and dive on in yeah, yeah. to Lord of the Rings on prime. Um, and we've got a couple very specific questions dealing with this time period. So I'll go ahead and throw some of those at you and we can talk about, uh, the show as well. Sure. Um, for first question we've got from Simon Cooper. Um, he asks, did Sauron have the one ring while he was in Numenor? And if so, how did he retrieve it, uh, after its downfall when his body was destroyed? No, he didn't. Um, he didn't. And that is, I gotta be honest. I think this is one of the greatest weaknesses of, mm. I mean, there are a lot of things that people will be like, oh, that's a plot hole in Tolkien. Mm. And I, I, you know, I never am a big, uh, I'm never much concerned about things mm. that people call plot holes. I think that a lot of times people are looking for problems and right. therefore making things into problems that aren't really yeah. problems. Um, so I'm never very impressed by plot hole discussions, but um, in my opinion, this is one of the biggest plot holes in mm. Tolkien's world. And there's a, there's a good reason for it. And the re let me, let me justify the plot hole before yeah. I even describe <laughs> it. Uh, the justification for it is that basically there were two threads of story that were growing at the same time in Tolkien's mind, right? On the one mm -hmm. hand, he had the, the whole, the history of the rings, um, mm -hmm. uh, the rings of power, uh, all the way for, and with Celebrimbor and in, you know, everything else all the way down to the, to the, that was like one thread of Sauron's story that was growing. Um, the Numenor story and the downfall of mm -hmm. Numenor story was a separate story that mm -hmm. he was writing. And that had begun way, well back before he started writing uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, but he returns to it in the middle of the Lord of the Rings. Um, he actually set the Lord of the Rings aside for a while and worked a lot on Numenor stuff. Um, this was, uh, this was during the gap. So there are two major gaps of the writing. Like, uh, when they get to Balin's tomb is one mm -hmm. place where he stopped for like a year writing. Mm. Um, and the second time was, um, like in the Emin wheel, basically like okay. right when Fro and Sam were drawing, like when he was just starting to go on the trip of the ring to Mordor and he yeah. kind of, petered out for a little bit okay. and wasn't sure how to continue it. Hmm. Um, uh, so that was, those were kind of the two moments when he just sort of stopped for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and during the second time that he stopped, what he did when he stopped was write a whole bunch of Numenor stuff. Mm. Okay. By the way, incidentally, inventing the Adonaic language um, mm. 
that whole language, the whole the language of Numenor was invented during that period. Wow. Um, uh, and he was really in the whole Atlantis thing that he was doing with Numenor mm -hmm. and stuff. He was really developing that idea. Um, he went back to his time travel story uh, connected to Numenor and stuff. Um, he'd started writing a different book called The Lost Road uh, mm -hmm. back before The Hobbit was published. Um, yeah. Uh, that's the one some people might know about the famous story when um, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien made a bet with each other. Um, they were going to write science fiction. And uh, and so they said, OK, let's do space travel and time travel. And they flipped the coin. Who would get space travel and who would get time <laughs> travel? Uh, and Tolkien got time travel and started mm. writing The Lost Road. Lewis got space travel and wrote Out of the Silent Planet, which is the mm -hmm. beginning of his space trilogy. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, but anyway, so... Um, <clears throat> So he, he he went back to that and started reworking that mm -hmm. concept, uh, the time travel concept, which is all about Numenor. It was it was right. all all about Numenor, um, and and he definitely decided that he wanted Sauron to be the primary villain of mm -hmm. that of that story. Yeah. Um, so even the Akalabeth kind of eventually comes out of that period, um, mm -hmm. that stuff that he was writing. Um, but as I say, they kind of grew up separately. So there's the like Sauron and Numenor story, and there's the Sauron and the Rings of Power story, right? right. And they never got like fully, fully integrated and, okay. the, and, yeah. and exactly the question that that person, you know, that the person is asking is exactly the crux of the issue, right? Mm. If Sauron has his ring as he would, he hadn't been taken from him yet. Right. Yeah. So like, why wouldn't he have it? It would be at the bottom of the ocean, right. Mm -hmm. Or where, you know, wherever Numenor ended up. Um, and that's a pretty big problem. Yeah. Right? Um, so basically in order to, cause that, that, that would be simply a puddle. I mean, mm. that would be just a contradiction. Um, and so therefore seeing that, um, Tolkien was forced basically to say that Sauron set his ring aside, mm. um, and didn't take it with him to okay. Numenor. I mean, there's no option. He can't, right. Sauron can't have it in Numenor. It's not possible. Right. But like, Sauron, really? Well, Sauron set it aside. Put, yeah, put it on a stand over here, like right. you know, and be like, watch that until I get back, right? Or what? What does he make a super secret magical vault or something yeah. that nobody else? I mean, like under like how on earth would he do that? Why would he do that? I mm. mean, it's 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 really hard to retcon Sauron's mindset, right? I mean, right. like maybe you could do something. Maybe you could be like, well, okay, you know, he'd be like, well, if our Farazan the king of Numenor, you know, to whom I'm surrendering captures, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to be his servant. He might demand if he finds out about the ring, he might demand my ring of power. And then, and maybe he even has the strength to wield it to some extent. And that mm. could be a threat. So, you know, maybe yeah. he's like, I don't want to deal with that. So I'm going to, I mean, that's the only rationale I can possibly imagine for Sauron, not bringing his ring with him. Right. right. Uh, yeah. Numenor. But even then, even with that justification, what does he do with it? I mean, where <laughs> on Middle Earth is Sauron going to be like, I'm, f I'm sure it'll be here when I get yeah, back. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. Be, like, it's only essential to my, like, survival and the core of all of my power. <laughs> I think I'm just going to put it under my pillow till I get back. Like, <laughs> what does he do? It's just hard, really hard to, because it's clear he doesn't even trust the Nazgul with it, mm -hmm. right? This is something that a lot of people misunderstand, but I think it's pretty clear in the text when the Nazgul are pursuing Frodo in book one of the Fellowship of the Ring, mm -hmm. they're not trying to take the ring from him. They're never trying to take the ring. They're mm -hmm. trying to take him right. with the ring. Like he's, yeah. Frodo's destiny is to bear the ring to Mordor. 
-hmm. whether he does it in the custody of the Nazgul or out of the custody of the Nazgul is the only question. They're going to haul him. Remember, that's what they say at the fort, right? Come Mm -hmm. back to Mordor. Mm -hmm. We will take you. Yeah. Right. I don't think the Nazgul can or certainly have permission to take the ring themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so he can't even leave it with the Nazgul. So what's he yeah. going to do? I, there's literally no one on earth he can trust with yeah. the ring. Is there any place he could hide it? So anyway, and honestly, that just, it just seems it's a really weak part of the story because it's, it's like, um, it's like a fault line, right? Mm-hmm. Between where two stories meet, right. uh, you know, two different stories in his, and he never fully retconned the join uh, mm-hmm. of those two stories. So the only thing we get is that one sentence in the Akalabeth, which is like, he set aside his ring of power and went to Numenor. And it's like, <laughs> wait, wait, what? He did what? <laughs> How? Why? You know, but we don't know. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, definitely a week and it's a it's 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 a kind of weakness that you get when tolkien didn't write that story yet like he never really fleshed that out and that kind of thing happens all over the place Mm -hmm. tolkien was super good at doing this kind of retcon um but um uh but he just he hadn't gotten to that one yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so sticking on the top you know since we're talking second age obviously we've got the amazon show coming up um so i'm curious obviously as a uh huge um and huge might be an understatement huge tolkien fan yourself um what percent excited versus nervous are you in regards to the new show i so i uh make the deliberate choice to be optimistic um Mm -hmm. i do it's not that i don't understand people who feel more dread than than Mm -hmm. than excitement i do understand that um i i I see all of the uh, reasons for um, uh, for uncertainty, but I reject mm-hmm. them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I reject them uh, because um, I, there will be time enough to lament mm-hmm. bad things done if they happen. Right. Um, I choose not to borrow trouble. <laughs> right. <Yes>. So now. <laughs> When we know nothing, I choose to think it's going to be awesome, and uh, and we will see. And I'm going to give it every chance to be awesome. Um, there are certainly uh, there are certainly causes for concern. There are certainly yeah, yeah. potential issues, uh, but um, but I am I I am excited. And the, here's the thing that I am most excited about. And so and first the other thing I would say, um, what we've actually seen from the Amazon people, like everything the Am- that Amazon has officially released mm-hmm. has been great. I've loved it. Mm-hmm. I've loved everything that they've released. I don't think there's anything that they've actually released that gives mm-hmm. me any cause of concern at all. Yeah. Um, so far, so good. Um, and there are several things that I love about what they're doing and yeah. what they've done. Um, and the main thing, there are two main things that I love. Thing number one, they're giving it time. Right. The Mm -hmm. biggest objection to the Peter Jackson films. There are lots of choices that they make that you might Mm -hmm. not like. And of course, the Hobbit films are just not very good movies. The uh, Lord of the Rings movies are very good movies, Um, but they're also 
in places, I think, less skillful adaptations uh, of the text. It's, it's ironic to me that I actually think the Hobbit films engage with the text a great deal more than mm. the Lord of the Rings films do, which they kind of leave the text aside uh, mm. for large bits in, in, in ways that the Hobbit text actually doesn't. Mm. But the Hobbit films are terrible movies, and so that <laughs> undermines everything else. Uh, but anyway... Um, the biggest problem, though, with the Peter Jackson films is they're too short. I mean, you mm. can't. A feature film is a terrible medium for adapting a book, any feature film and any mm -hmm. book, because you're going to cut mean, so much out. Yeah. I mean, the, the audiobook readers have a natural and more intrinsic understanding of this, right? The Hobbit, the mm. Hobbit audiobook, unabridged audiobook is 11 hours long. Right. Mm -hmm. So just like to, to literally do the story, you know, to narrate mm -hmm. the story of the Hobbit takes 11 hours yeah. to try to compress that into even three movies mm -hmm. because you've got to add stuff for right. visual, you know, if, you know, the visuals and stuff. Um, Cause the Hobbit is very light and breezy. You know, there's not, you, you would have to, you know, I've always argued with people who say like, Oh, one book into three movies, but there's a lot of story. I agree. I agree. No. And, and especially the way that they were approaching that. I, 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 I agree. I, I'm a strong opponent of people who say the problem with the Hobbit films was the one book into three movies. No, I think right. that was actually exactly the right call. They just yeah. did it very badly. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, Lord of the Rings, you've got to be kidding me. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. this is, this is, you know, 50 i forget how many 60 hours of narration yeah. i mean and, and and that's just the narration of the audiobook right so to compress that into even the quite long movies that peter <laughs> jackson made you just i mean the 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 literary equivalent of a feature film is not the novel it's the short story right mm -hmm. i mean this these are mm -hmm. short stories that you're telling um so it's really really awkward um i'm mm -hmm. not saying that no book adaptation has ever been done well you know in a feature film but i'm saying it's like, I mean, you could also tell a really good short story adapted from a novel too, if you wanted to, but it's a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was the very first thing that I am delighted by with Amazon is that they're going to take their time. Uh, mm -hmm. a, you know, a, 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 an epic narrative, you know, over, in, in, over multiple seasons is exactly what this story yes. needs to do it justice. Absolutely. So I am delighted that they are doing that. They're going to get a chance to really sit down with the story um, and do so many of the things that they had to just rush crazily through mm -hmm. uh, in the film. So that's the number one thing that I absolutely love um, about the adaptation. The second thing like as a bonus, I mean, I would have loved it if they were just doing that, you know, starting from the long expected party. Right. But mm -hmm. doing like, uh, I mean, originally, if you'd asked me like two years ago uh, before they'd released anything at all, I would have been like, okay, what I'm hoping for is that they'll give us at least six seasons, like one season per book, like mm, season okay. one from Hobbiton to Rivendell and season two, you know, from Rivendell to, uh, to, to, to Parth Gallen, Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. at the very minimum. That's what I would have hoped for. Yeah. Um, when they when when they said essentially okay we're going to tell we're going to do the lord of the rings and we're starting with celebrimbor and the forging of the rings of power i was like oh yes that's <laughs> how you do it right there yeah that's uh, let's start the story from the let's really take our time right? and now based on the things um based on the things that they um, that they have uh, uh, released, I'm not even convinced we're going to get to the last Alliance by the end of the first mm -hmm. season. You know, right. I mean, uh, it's, it seems entirely possible that the whole, 
first season could like the 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 climax of season one could be nothing more than like the reveal that Anatar is Sauron like the mm-hmm. and you know Celebrimbor being aware of the forging of the one right. ring like that could be the end of season yeah. one because we have the Numenor stuff involved there too mm-hmm. it's it's very you know maybe we get the downfall of Numenor to the you know at the end of the first yeah. season it's possible we go all the way through the Numenor plot but it, it's now beginning to feel like okay the forging of the rings of power and all that stuff with Anatar mm-hmm. and Celebrimbor and the the growth of the shadow and Gilgalad is concerned and and uh, you know Alderion king of uh, of Numenor is in com- conversation with him and and they're uh, you know allying with each other and stuff so we got that whole subplot and right. then we get the uh, the you know, and then the whole history of Numenor, right mm-hmm. after that, all the way up to our Farazan and the capturing of Sauron and the downfall of Numenor. Golly, that sounds like a lot to do in one season, right? Right. To then imagine that we're going to get the whole Last Alliance plot and the mm-hmm. you know up to the destruction of Sa- it now seems like a crazy ambitious thing to try to do mm-hmm. in one season, which is phenomenal. I mean, like yeah, two maybe two maybe more than two. Seasons, whole seasons in the second age. Oh my goodness. That's See, phenomenal. This is interesting because I I have always and, and I think this is just my own assumption. I've assumed that the entire show was going to be the second age. You know, from mm-hmm. from what you're saying, it kind of sounds like you're expecting us to go from second age all the way through Lord of the I Rings, think, destruction of so. the one ring. I think so. And the thing that I'm that that I have no idea. I mean, because they've they've they, you know, everything they've released is all second age, it's all right. pointing to the second age and the and the this the I mean I the last alliance is like the utter limit of uh right. uh of anything that they've talked about or released. Mm-hmm. Um I certainly I certainly think that they're going to um uh they're gonna get to the actual Lord of the Rings proper. Mm. Um my question is what about the first 3000 years of right. the third age? Yeah. You know, how much of that are they going to, are we going to get the whole thing? Are we going to get some kind of like bits of it? You know, are mm-hmm. we going to get a season about the rise and fall of Gondor? Are we going to get a season about the rise and fall of Arnor? You know, are, are or we going to do that? Yeah. Exactly. With Angmar and all that. I mean, goodness knows there's enough to talk about there. Yeah. Um, and it's all in the appendices. Well, all, I mean, all that there is, is in the right. appendices. Yeah. Almost all that there is. Um, so, uh, so it's possible, right? You know, we could definitely, we could, you know, so they could do that. So we could get, I mean, who even knows? We right. could get 10 <laughs> seasons before we get to the long expected party. Yeah. You know. I'd be um, okay with that. I'd be totally fine with that. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, like a nice 20 year run. I mean, there's obviously a, a lot of risk involved there, right? Mm-hmm. To release a series called the Lord of the Rings and not get to the Lord of the Rings right. <laughs> for yeah. 10 years, you know, yeah. 10 seasons seems, um, you know, a lot, uh, yeah. a lot to do. And but, I'm curious uh, to yeah. see, you know, what if if that ends up being the final title of the show, you know, if like ev- everything we've seen so far is just Lord of the Rings on Prime. I wonder mm-hmm. if they'll be end up we'll getting a, uh, you know, a subtitle like Lord of the Rings, the second age or something. Right. Yeah, I, wonder. Um, I, wonder. I mean, yeah. And I've, I've, you know, people have made the the point, you know, well, Sauron is the Lord of the Rings, so you can name the series after the main yeah. antagonist, you know. Sure. Why not? <laughs> well, the books um, are kind of made, named after the main antagonist. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got another uh, question here from uh, this one from Dorian Trussell. Um, this should be a pretty easy one. I think this is this is kind of a guarantee. Uh, uh, the question is, will Narvi and the creation of the doors of Doran be in the show? I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. 
Oh yeah. See, though it falls into that period, right? I mean, yeah. that's another classic early third age moment, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Angmar and the wars with, uh, with, uh, with Arnor is, uh, you know, is one mm-hmm. rise and fall of Gondor, of course, is another big storyline, mm-hmm. you know, like Errol the young and the establishment of Rohan, mm-hmm. of course, is another big thing, but the dwarf story, absolutely. You mm-hmm. know, the, uh, um, the, the Durin's Bane and uh, uh, the, the fall of the dwarf kingdoms um, mm-hmm. um, by the Narvi. Um, yeah, so he. I would be shocked. I would. If Narvi I would get a character in season one. Right. Yeah. I. I almost guarantee. You know, we'll see yeah. him and Celebrimbor yeah. making Absolutely. the door something that yeah. iconic from the films and that no iconic from the books. I mean, yeah. but especially, yeah. you know, you you figure Amazon's going to cater also to fans that have primarily know it from the films. Something as iconic as the Doors of Durin. I. Yeah. I think they won't pass that up for sure. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, that's, and yeah, as, uh, 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 if Senrod just said, um, you can totally do spinoffs of stuff that's not in the books themselves, like the blue wizards, right? Yeah. One of the great mysteries, right? What were right. the blue wizards up to out in the East, uh, and, or the South? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. You could do that. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, so, I mean, even the stories that are told mm-hmm. in the, or pointed to at least right. in the third, third age is a lot of material. Yeah. Um, but when you start adding in untold stories, stories mm-hmm. that are hinted at, but never told like what the blue wizards are up to. Yeah. Um, that I think is, um, uh, you know, would be, would be a big deal. So yeah, yeah lots of potential there. I think, yeah, I think that's another one of those where, you know, if you look at it from, you know, uh, it's easy to look at it from a perspective of a, a book fan and say like, Oh, I want to see this. I want to see all these details. And then, you know, you also look at it from a movie studio perspective and you think like, okay, you know, who's the, the most popular characters from our, the existing films. And like Gandalf is right there <clears throat> at the top. And like, we have a chance to incorporate two more wizards that are mm-hmm. pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even pretty... more of like, what was Radagast up to? Like, what was his yeah. job? <laughs> You know, like he's, he's doing something right. He's, right. He's, he's not just like, you know, some weird hermit living in Merkwood, <laughs> you know, doing nothing. So yeah. what was his role? You know, what right. was his, uh, and you know, Tolkien's own mind changed about this stuff mm-hmm. over time. You know, there was a, sure. there was, there was a point, especially like right after the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was in this, I, I don't want to like be dismissive and call it a phase, but he was in this <laughs> sort of like, I want to make sure everybody understands how awesome Gandalf is face. Mm. Right. Um, and so he, that was the point at which he said like Gandalf was the only one of the wizards who succeeded, like everybody mm. else failed. Yeah. Um, and the whole like Radagast failed is one of those things that like, one of the few things that Tolkien said um, uh, that I'm like, it's kind of harsh. Yeah, exactly. Kind of harsh. Like, you were wrong about that, Tolkien. <laughs> I, I got, um, it, and and as he went on to develop the story a little bit, it's, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me fairly clear that he was kind of he lightened up a bit on that, taking that back. He never yeah. explicitly took that back, but right. I think that his mind was changed based on some other things that he was writing. I think that he was his mind was changing about that. Um, well, in the Blue Wizards, even he, you know, he because yeah. they're they're included in that, and then in the later version of the Blue Wizards has them, you know without their help, the forces of the East would outnumber those of the West. And I mean, that doesn't sound like failure. 
yeah. to me. Anyway. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. And with Radagast, like when he decided that Radagast, you know, when he actually went to write in, uh, the like Valinorian backstories of the mm -hmm. wizards, right? Who they yeah. were before they came to Middle Earth. Um, you know, it like he explicitly says that Radagast is one of the Maiar of um of uh, uh of Yavanna, right? Mm -hmm. The you know, the Valar of the you know, the 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 plants and the beasts and everything. So it's like I'm sorry, like Yavanna would not consider the I mean so the implication of his statement mm -hmm. that even Radagast failed mm -hmm. is that basically the job of the wizards is to oppose Sauron and Radagast was just like going native and hanging right. out with birds <laughs> and beasts and that's not enough. Like he didn't he didn't contribute enough to the yeah. war effort essentially um that seems to be the implication of his saying that radagast mm -hmm. failed but like seriously you're going to convince yavana that him being friends to the birds and beasts and looking after the like is she going to call that a failure I, <laughs> I think that yavana would disagree with Tolkien right. there too right? yeah so that that's what leads me to think that he was softening on that again he never mm -hmm. explicitly took it back but then again he never published it either um and you know the original one in his lifetime so he didn't have to take it back um but uh, this is one of the issues when we get after his death, all of these things that he wrote published that he didn't ever publish. Right. right. Is that, yeah. yeah, a lot of times you see him kind of brainstorming basically. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, saying one idea and then rolling out a different idea later on. And so, you know, it's hard to say that, but um, anyway, so it's, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you know, he, he, he kind of went, went, went back and forth there, but yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think there could be some really cool stories and I would yeah. definitely be in favor of some stories about like what the blue wizards were doing out East and the mm -hmm. kind of impact that that had, because one thing that's clear, <clears throat> um, it's, um, it's very easy to read Tolkien and uh, come just like some really simplistic conclusions right mm -hmm. like that like basically tolkien is saying like oh all the the people out east and the people like all the people of rune and Harad. which mm -hmm. keep in mind rune and Harad aren't even countries rune and Harad literally mean east and south right right so like, <laughs> the, like the rune and Harad are not there's not a political alliance right. it's just like the people of gondor literally waving their hands and being like the southerly that people way. and the yeah. easterly people right? <laughs> right so anyway rune and Harad. um the people of Rune and Hart are not evil people like who mm -hmm. love Sauron, right? Yeah. The, you know, Sauron has get enslaved and corrupted them in various ways. And mm -hmm. there is definitely the implication, especially in some of Tolkien's later writings, he makes this more explicit that behind the scenes, um, Tolkien was imagining this whole like, propaganda like uh through like by means of a religious cult like the cult of mm -hmm. sauron like to worship him as a god so yeah he's sending out like sauron evangelists who are like convert and like bringing people to do horrible mm -hmm. like uh, you know probably even playing the uh rolling out the same play uh, you know the same playbook that he ran in numenor, numenor with the human yeah. sacrifice and stuff yeah. right to try to try to corrupt them morally to the you know uh, to get them to do horrible things in his mm -hmm. name um in other words, like he is absolutely uh, not like utilizing the cultures, but he is undermining the cultures. Right. He is he yeah. is um, uh, he is corrupting and mm -hmm. uh, eliminating the native cultures in the yeah. east and south. And so, to show the drama of that, like mm -hmm. where we're there will have been some places that held out, some places that yeah. said we will have nothing to do with this. There would have been wars between. Mm -hmm. 
you know, people who had come over to Sauron and those who hadn't, there'd be civil wars, right. uh, yeah. you know, where particular lands and towns and families are torn. Mm -hmm. um, and the blue wizards, in theory, would have been involved. Are, yeah, in, in absolutely. And so there's really cool, fun stories. So yeah. um, the opportunity. So of course we never meet any of the any of the good guys right. among the Haradrim yeah. and 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 the Easterlings. But they they must by by they, they must exist. Exist. yeah like, yeah they totally exist within exactly. the world that Tolkien created. Now, of course we never see them because the only ones we see are the ones who march with Sauron's armies, right? Right. Because so, we never yeah. go to Rune or Harad. Right. Um, but so I mean, it does. It does. I won't even. I won't say encourage, but it does enable um mm -hmm. a really simplistic reading right mm -hmm. and, and yeah. one especially a, a really simplistic racist racist reading right yeah like the reading of tolkien as racist i mean mm -hmm. which says like oh yeah so tolkien is saying like all of these you know non-white races only, yeah like, the only are, good people in lord of the rings are white people are white, or something. right exactly yeah. Yeah. and i mean this is a result of him choosing the north of the world right you know mm -hmm. as, as like the center you know, sort of the theater of action um um but anyway even on that basis it's not quite as simple as that but right. um but but anyway yes like was he envisioning that like you know uh, you know black people and asian people are all evil no right. that no. is not yeah. even the story in the book that's not the story yeah. but uh, but again we never see it because right. it's not yeah you know and it's one of, yeah it's one of those things like I, I wonder, you know, if if Tolkien had more time on this earth, you know, if that's something he would have eventually gotten around to. I mean, obviously, he wrote a ton of stuff and we, we gradually got that from Christopher um, over the over the decades. Um, but, yeah, like you said, it, it there's definitely a um, I feel like oversimplified, you know, narrative that sometimes pops up right. about this. And um, yeah. it's it's why one of the you know when they released the synopsis of the show one of the the sentences i was most excited about was when it said the far reaches of the map yeah because yeah that's that's always been my you know when when you know friends and stuff because uh you know i if you can imagine i'm the biggest tolkien nerd in my fan in my uh family and friend group right, right, right. <laughs> um when they ask me you know like oh well you know why why are all the bad guy you know all all the uh minorities are bad and i'm like well right let me sit down and talk to you for the next half hour. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, and it, it boils down to, you know, like, like the blue wizard thing, you know, they clearly had, you know, other people that they were working with, you know, it's not just like these two guys just taking out all of Sauron's forces, you know, they were, you know, creating forces of good within, in this realm. And you have to acknowledge too, that, you know, as I, I did a video earlier on, um, uh, on all of Sauron's travels and the guy flees to the East a lot mm -hmm. for hundreds of years at a time. So yeah. the yes. idea that he has a, you know, strong presence in that realm makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the fact that you've got him and the blue wizards both operating in the East there, I think could, could, you know, depend on how the timeline shakes out for the show, that could be a really cool uh, yeah. thing to see in the show, but it's definitely not, not as simple as uh as some might initially assume. Yeah, there is, there are so, there's so much potential for really rich and complicated stories out there. I mean, mm -hmm. thinking about exactly what you're describing and the thing I would emphasize is hundreds of years, right? Mm -hmm. Cause there's lots of hundreds of years is yeah. in like both when he's out there and when he's not there. Right? right. So, you know, he, yeah, he flees out there to the East 
So Melkor goes out there first in the first right. age. Yeah. He establishes worship out there. That's when mm -hmm. men fall in the first place, right? The yeah. untold story in the Silmarillion of the fall of man. Right. Um, then Sauron goes back out. So, so step one, right? Then step two, Sauron goes out there and there will have been the remnants of Melkor cult, but it's been hundreds of years, right? right? Generations of men. What's yeah. happened to the cult of Melkor, right? Yeah. How has that developed? Over time, yeah. how has the culture grown from that over the hundreds of years when Melkor is not actively there? There would mm -hmm. probably still be a priesthood. Would it have changed in some way? How would it be still placed within the society? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Then Sauron comes and he's like, okay, I can work with this. Right. Yeah. And so he yeah. establishes himself as the new God King and mm -hmm. will build a new worship, but there will be some who will resist and some who won't. And, and, but then he leaves and then the same thing. Right. So then he right. comes back after like a thousand years and is like, Hey, Hey, the God of old has returned. And some people will be like, holy cow, the God of old is back among us. <laughs> but others will be like, Hey, that's not my God of old. Like, right. you know, that maybe that, you know, there might be places where like the cult of Sauron had become like quiet and gentle, right? Like it mm -hmm. had like become incorporated <laughs> into other, I mean, it's been a thousand years, right? right. It could be like, Technically, like in, yeah. I mean, we could have you know, like some little pockets of Easterling society in which, like, they still theoretically worship Sauron, but they decorate him with flowers and, like, who knows? <laughs> like, you put know, him on it, top of a Christmas tree. Exactly <laughs> right. There could be all kinds of like funny and adorable little, you know, absolutely. So, because again, who knows the way that like particular cultures are going to grow or the kind of mm -hmm. legends that are going to grow around? And so then, when Sauron comes back, the, you know, and and he's like, all like, I want you to like sacrifice babies to me. He'd be you know, they'd be like, that's not our God, right? <laughs> like, right. <Yeah. laughs> this is not, the, this is not the true Sauron that we know yeah. and worship. So, I mean, it's so interestingly complicated, the kinds of ways, and you know, and then to have somebody like the blue wizards coming around to being yeah. like, let me tell you the skinny, right? Like yeah. what's really going on with this guy and everything right. else. So um, anyway, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's a, it's, it's, there's so much there's just, it's, I mean, it's so written. You could do a whole series on just, you know, the East and looking mm -hmm. at how this, uh, uh, and how this goes by. And then of course, remember you've got, then Sauron vanishes for another, you know, even just thinking of the third age, right? right? He goes away and he goes away for thousands of years, thousands yeah. of years. I mean, the amount of time between the fall of Sauron at the battle of the last Alliance, right? The battle of, battle of Dagorlat and the slopes of Mount doom all the way up until he moves back into Mordor and redeclares mm -hmm. himself in the East, right? That is about the same amount of time as between now and like the high period of like the, ancient Egyptian empire for mm. us. Right. Yeah. I mean, like that's wow. how long it's, yeah. it's a long, long time right. ago. We're talking like, or maybe like the Punic wars, like the first Punic <laughs> wars. That's how far in the distance. A so, long time. <laughs> so many of the Easterlings are going to be like Sauron. Who like, what are you? Who are you? We've yeah. never heard of you. Um, you know, there might be some ancient stone tablets somewhere that still remember <laughs> the worship of Sauron, but right. not many. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's really, um, it's really, it's, again, it's fascinating, fascinating yeah. to think how this happens. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with you. I like, you know, we, we got on this topic with, the uh, Amazon show, but I'm, I'm kind of the same way. What I always tell people is I'm not going to worry about anything until there's something to worry about. Right. right. <laughs> you yeah, know, like exactly. we don't even have a trailer and like, right. You know, right. so exactly. I, you know, I until mean, I have something to look at, 
Right. And yeah. we should probably address explicitly. I know one of the major things that people are worried about is the whole like nudity thing. Right. Mm. You know, and yeah. that's why that's why I was emphasizing everything Amazon has released. Right. I'm totally on board with. That's not something that they released. That's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, conclusions that have been drawn based drawn. on plausible evidence that has been right. found. Yeah. Um, and th there again, I'm just kind of uh, I'm just kind of waiting and yeah. we'll, we'll see. Cause the evidence could be understood in many different mm -hmm. ways. You know, yeah. I mean, like it's like, is it possible that they're going to do, you know, they're going to do the HBO approach. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, make sure that they have at least one topless scene in every right. episode, you know, like randomly added topless prostitutes in the room with, I mean, yeah, maybe they'll do that. And if yeah. they do, that'll be horrible. Like, and right. I'm not going to say that won't be horrible. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that that is what it means I, yeah. necessarily. I don't right. think, you know, I, I still going until we, until we know, I'm right. not gonna, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not going to trouble myself about it too much. Right. Um, I mean, I will say, I do think it would be a really, really big mistake mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I don't, yeah, I'm right there with yeah. you. Like I, I get that question a lot um, mm -hmm. with stuff mm -hmm. like that. And my thought is, you know, you've got Amazon has invested a ton of money into this ton thing. Of money. And they spent half a billion dollars for the just rights for the rights. Yeah. Just, for the rights before yeah. they spent a penny on the production. Right. They spent half a billion dollars yeah. on, uh, so, uh, yeah. So, so, so I so. don't think they're going to go out and say like, if there's one, you know, one of the few things that will immediately turn off your diehard Tolkien fans, it would be gratuitous nudity. nudity. Yes. And yeah. so like, I, I think I, I like to think, you know, that these people are smart enough to know, how big of a turnoff that would be. And I so, I, so that's why I don't get, I don't get too, like you, like you said, I don't, don't borrow a drama. Don't borrow, or, don't borrow <laughs> trouble. Don't borrow trouble. Yeah, don't borrow trouble. It, yeah. Don't borrow trouble. It's, 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 you know, there'll be time enough to get upset if it happens, but <laughs> right. Uh, you know, if it didn't happen, then, you know, you've wasted all your time and energy getting right. upset made yourself yeah. miserable for no reason. Right. Um, but, um, but I, I am hoping that too, the, the main thing that gives me hope about this actually, and I got to give um, Peter Jackson props about this. Peter Jackson did a really admirable job. Um, it would have been so easy uh, to sexualize the women, at least mm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. In yeah, it's not that there's no love. It's not that there's no romance. It's right. not that I'm not saying that like sexual desire is utterly absent from all right. of the characters at all times. For sure, yeah. But think how the costuming, right? Mm -hmm. Galadriel, Arwen, Eowyn, mm -hmm. even Toriel, even Toriel, who is added just to be a, a female, female presence. Yeah, you know, like he had so much opportunity to like, he could, it would have been so easy to put, you know, Evangeline Lily in some kind of slinky Catwoman outfit at some point. Right. right? Yeah. Or you know, like, or a princess had, Leia bikini or something or something, right? He yeah. had every, like every external justification. Right. I mean, like Hollywood does this all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, to, you know, to be like, well, obviously, uh, you know, if you want to maintain the interest of a certain demographic, right. then like, you're going to need to include this kind of thing. I mean, his films, all of them, all six of them actively resist that pressure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and I was really impressed. I was expecting that. That was the, yeah. that was actually the biggest thing I was worried about with Toriel. Mm. Um, I wasn't worried about the fact of the creation of her character. That made yeah. sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like the wood elves, there are no wood elves. Like there's the elven king. There's not even like there's one who gets a name accidentally because we find out <laughs> what the dude's name is when yeah. one of the other elf talks to him. But there's no characters. Even the elven king is yeah. just called elven king. He never right. really gets a name or a character, right? Um, um, uh, people uh, people complain about Legolas being included, but what were they supposed to do? Legolas right. was the son of the elven king. He would totally yeah. have been there. Like right. you can't avoid that. Yeah. Um, but like so th- that they were going to invent a named wood elf character to help us like kind of get an understanding of what else. So, like you mm-hmm. almost have to do that. Yeah. I think I would have done the same thing if doing an adaptation of the Hobbit. And if you're going to invent one, mm-hmm. you're going to invent a female character, right. right? Because there are no female <laughs> characters. In yeah. the, actually, it's not true. Uh, I just, I, I, I just realized uh, only recently, like within the last few years that there is a female character in the Hobbit. Uh, the spider, the, sp- the spider that Bilbo kills with Sting when he wakes up. Well, the there spider we go. Is female. Okay. And he uses a female pronoun there. So there you go. See, there there's a female. Uh, in uh, there's, there's, there's a, uh, that will satisfy nobody. Yeah. Uh, but um, anyway, so yeah, like obviously, like so. If you, and if you're gonna invent a new character, it's gotta yeah. be female. So like I said, I've never had a problem with Toriel conceptually. Like you know, right. it makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, but that's I've actually I defended. Yeah, I've defended Toriel myself uh, a few times because I what I've always said is, um, you know, her as a character, I thought, and I think Evangeline Lilly is great, and mm-hmm. uh, you know everything they did with her character outside of the love triangle. Yes. I'm a fan of, Me too. you know, and, Me too. and, you know, I, I have read that, you know, that was one of the conditions of Evangeline Lilly coming on was that she would not be in a love triangle. And, and then the studio yeah. wants a love triangle. So they get a love triangle. I, but, I, 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 I feel such personal compassion, even pity for Evangeline Lilly. Yeah. When watching the Hobbit films, especially, oh my goodness, especially in the end of the last film. Why does it hurt so much? When she is forced (laughs) to say some of literally the worst. I mean, like the lines that Evangeline Lilly has to deliver there are as bad, almost as bad as the Anakin and Padme romance lines in the attack of the clones. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's close, but they're almost that bad. I never thought that that badness of dialogue would be rival would be rivaled. Oh my goodness. (laughs) They managed it. Um, But um, anyway, anyway. um, uh, So um, the, uh, the, the, but, but so back, but back to the like, yeah. But yeah, it's, it was very, like you said, it's very admirable. I mean, it is, Tolkien never, I know of very few stories, um, especially very few novels written in the 20th century and forward Mm -hmm. that use, to use the old word, prurient desire. That is like desire that act to incite sexual Mm -hmm. desire on the Mm -hmm. part of the reader. To to go to the opposite extreme, George R.R. Martin does this all the time. Right. I mean, uh, there are constant scenes where like he is trying to make you feel, you know, the kind of sexual desire that that the characters in the books are feeling. Tolkien never uses sexual desire as a hook ever, Mm -hmm. ever uses sexual. It's again, it's not that it never happens, but he never uses it as a hook. There is I don't Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single place in anything that talk okay let me not say that i can't think of anything in tolkien's published works that's safe <laughs> um in which 
Tolkien is um, like inviting us even indirectly mm -hmm. yeah. uh, to experience as readers, that kind of, the kind of sexual desire, like the, the kind of the, the, like the titillation, yes, the kind of, of titillation yeah. that like, you know, pornography excites, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the, he never, ever does that. Yeah. And um, that, is Which I think for. is why it would it would be so foreign, you know, if yes. you saw that in an adaptation, it would just, you know, it, it would clash with your expectations and what would feel true to Tolkien, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, there's nothing, I think, that would be that would feel like less true mm -hmm. to the spirit of Tolkien than that than mm -hmm. actually having that kind of, uh, you know, that, that kind of prurient interest on the part of the viewers to, yeah. uh, you know, make you keep watching because you're hoping she's going to take her shirt off. Right. I mean like mm -hmm. that, that, that kind of dynamic, which again, Hollywood does this sort of thing all the time. It's a, it's a pretty common card um, yeah. that Hollywood plays in order to keep you engaged with what's happening. Right. Um, there is no appeal mm -hmm. that you can make that is more alien to mm -hmm. Tolkien's stories and Tolkien's world yeah. on that. Absolutely. So um, anyway, that's, that's, so that's certainly why I think, but you know, there are some ways in which they could kind of come up to the line that would not for me totally ruin it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I, I, I do hope that they don't go there. Right. Um, yeah. I do hope that they don't go there in general, but yeah, um, yeah uh, I, think, I think we're, yeah. we're definitely in agreement on that. Well, I'll I'll move on from Lord of the Ring. I'm sure we could like sit here and hypothesize on Lord of the Rings on Prime all day <laughs> yeah, long. Yeah, um, I did have some other questions I wanted to make sure I got to. So sure. um, uh, Maria asked, what was your first experience with the world of Tolkien? My first experience with the world of Tolkien. I first read The Hobbit when I was eight. Um, and uh, And here's how it happened. My parents loved... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and they 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 had been looking forward to reading the Chronicles of Narnia with their kids, you know. For, so when I was seven, my parents read the Chronicles of Narnia aloud to my sister and and, and me, and um, I loved it. I loved the Chronicles of Narnia, and I like started rereading them again to myself as soon as my parents finished reading them to me. Um, it's one of the things, you know, one of those like I I always remember like you know where I was sitting and like the, you know, the house that we lived in when I was getting the Chronicles of Narnia read to me, it was wonderful. Um, and, but my parents were not Tolkien fans. They did not know mm -hmm. Tolkien at all. Um, and so they, um, uh, they didn't, you know, so that was all I had was Chronicles of Narnia. Um, that Christmas, one of my cousins uh, had heard that, you know, I heard the story that about how much I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And so he gave me my first copy of the Hobbit, uh, and said like, if you like Narnia, you'll probably like this too. Mm -hmm. So he handed me a copy of the Hobbit. I still have the copy of the Hobbit since over there on my shelf. Um, <laughs> I still have the copy of Hobbit, the Hobbit that he handed me when I was eight. Uh, it's, it's, it's the, if you know, Hobbit editions, it's the purple emu edition. Um, okay. the one with the wild, crazy psychedelic, uh, landscape coverage. It has nothing to do with the Hobbit whatsoever. <laughs> um, uh, it's the whole series of the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings that was published in, I think it was in the seventies, uh, by Ballantine. Uh, and um, 
He's just like hilariously. In fact, there's a funny story about that. that. The artist who drew those covers mm-hmm. had never read The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. She was, <laughs> it was like one of those things where the publisher was like, we need a, you know, covers like in two weeks, do it. Yeah. Uh, and so she did it. You know, she's like, okay, fantasy world. All right. So she has like, <laughs> You know, a purple emu is the, it's called the purple emu edition by Tolkien <laughs> folks, because it's so funny that there's a purple emu randomly uh, uh, grazing, you know, like next wow. to Bag End. Um, but, um, but anyway, later on, she actually read the Hobbit of the Lord, of the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, and she wrote an apology to Tolkien. She actually sent him an olive branch in the mail. Uh, and like asking for his forgiveness for her pictures that she put on the covers of his book. But anyway, so it was a purple emu edition of the Hobbit. Um, and I just, you know, reading that, that was just a life-changing experience for me. I read the Hobbit. I immediately got the Lord of the Rings, um, and, uh, read the Lord of the Rings and, uh, and, you know, people sometimes ask me like, you know, what do you remember from your first time through the Lord of the Rings? And I'm like, I can't even tell because my first reading of the Lord of the Rings was immediately followed by my second reading of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And, you know, so like, it was just like, I just began immediately immersing myself and rereading and rereading the text. Um, so, so yeah, it was, um, uh, it was, it was, uh, that was very early on. And I lived, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, so when this is when I was eight, when I was in elementary school, I lived in rural West Virginia um, on a, like I lived on a mountaintop in rural West Virginia. I literally had to hike down the mountain to get to the bus stop and back oh, up wow. every day. Um, so like I, I was living literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, um, therefore I didn't have, I didn't have a library that was mm. close to me. I didn't, you know, and, and my parents, as my parents were not great readers, uh, mm-hmm. especially not a fiction. So, um, you know, I had a very small number of books, right? right. So when I was a kid, I, you know, for my elementary school years, I would like read and reread and reread like this same, same books, small yeah. number of books. And so it's one of the reasons. So that honestly, that's been the foundation of my whole like Tolkien studies career. Yeah. Um, uh, is that I grew up from, from the time when I was eight until the time I graduated high school. I don't even know how many times I read the Lord of the Rings, wow. but I have to have averaged at least twice a year, possibly three times a year reading wow. the Lord of the Rings during that time. Cause I had, I mean, by the time I was in high school, I had access to other books Right, I did read other things. Uh, we'd moved and I, I, we lived actually, I live in Southern New Hampshire right now, which is pre- I've pretty much moved back to where I went to high school, which still is weird on some days, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I, I'm back near my my extended family again. Okay, um, cool. But um, but anyway, so here we had libraries and bookstores, yeah. and, like that, <laughs> and pavement uh, and stuff. Um, so so but, when did uh, uh, so when did you get beyond you know Hobbit and Lord of the Rings? When did you start getting into the uh, you know Silmarillion and uh, yeah. kind of the deeper lore? Later, really. Um, I tried to read the Silmarillion for the first time when I was 14 and I completely failed. Mm. I discovered uh, it in a bookstore um, and I was like, you know, because I was like wandering through the fantasy section and I'm like, there's another Tolkien book. <laughs> How did I not know this? You yeah. Know? And um, I've always been like, I, I've never been, you know, there are some people who always like, their first impulse is to go out and do all their research and like find all the background information. That's never been Mm -hmm. me. I've always been, you know, from the beginning, I was always like, I'm content with the primary text, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I didn't even read the appendices for a long time. Oh, wow. Um, I think I was probably in middle school before I read the appendices because I like that kind of curiosity. I never really had, like, I just, Mm -hmm. I loved the story and I just wanted to immerse myself in the story. Um, But anyway, uh, so, so I, I discovered that the Silmarillion existed when I was 14. 
And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. It's like a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. I want that. It's just <laughs> what I want. I want more Lord of the Rings. So I started reading the Silmarillion and I'm like, whoa. You're like, wait, okay, what's this, this song stuff? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so I don't know how far I got. I think I couldn't have gotten past the Valaquenta. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm quite sure that I dropped it by the time I got to the Valaquenta. Because I mean, now I dropped it reverently, right? Because it was Tolkien, right? Yeah. So I'm like... Like this must be good, but it's (laughs) definitely not what I want, you know? So it wasn't until high school, um, Mm -hmm. maybe even late high school that I came back, uh, and read the Silmarillion for the first time. And only, you know, thereafter, uh, probably during college was when I was first really reading things like unfinished tales and, Mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that for the first time. Um, So, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was relatively kind of late in the game. Uh, I saw people joking and I get this question a lot, you know, people saying like, so how do you become a Tolkien professor? I want that. (laughs) First of all, it doesn't pay much. Let me just tell you that (laughs) up front. Okay. Uh, you should be warned if you're considering this as a career. Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, basically i mean step one become a professor that's kind of that's kind of you know how it works Makes um, sense. uh because th- that's i mean that's what i that's what i that's what I, I didn't i'm not just a tolkien reader who declared myself you know the tolkien <laughs> professor how that came about so first i became a professor basically i you know through my love of tolkien really um i you know, was passionate about literature and I was passionate about medieval literature and particularly Tolkien had really awakened this love for medieval stuff. So when I first read medieval stuff, I'm like, mm-hmm. this is awesome. I love this stuff. Um, so I, uh, when I went to college, I was an English major and I decided I wanted to go to grad school. I wanted to teach. Teaching is what I really love. Um, and I decided I really wanted to teach college. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a medievalist, medieval lit. I loved medieval lit, and that's what I wanted to study. So I went to graduate school, and I studied. I got my PhD in medieval literature from Columbia University, and then I got a tenure track job as a an English professor teaching medieval literature. Um, and it wasn't until then that, and it was funny. Like looking back on it, there's so many things in my life that I look back on, and I'm like, how dumb was I for so long? For how long? <laughs> but like seriously, I think we all have that. Yeah, yeah it never. <laughs> People like would scarcely even believe I was so obtuse, uh, but it's totally true. Throughout my whole college, under, uh, graduate school, and like the first couple years of my professional professoring career, mm-hmm. it never even occurred to me to include Tolkien in my academic studies. Like it <laughs> never even occurred to me to write an article about Tolkien, to do anything. I was a medievalist who yeah. loved Tolkien. And like, it was like, I had this like firewall up between like... <laughs> private life and my official academic life, you know? Um, And part of that, of course, was at least indirectly encouraged by the fact that the academic world, the the literary academic world is very interested in keeping the firewall up between Mm. Tolkien and the official world of literary studies, Mm. um, uh, which is dumb uh, and which there, I'm delighted to say that, um, stick in the mud academics who have been trying to maintain that for years are uh, losing that fight very Mm. resoundingly these days, (laughs) which is delightful. And they should, they deserve it. Um, So anyway, so I, so that was part of it. I think that like, you know, I had never been encouraged by anyone to consider my love Mm -hmm. of Tolkien as relevant at all to my literary studies. Um, But anyway, 
I, it, whatever. I never made that connection. I kept that firewall up, but then the moment came the moment and the moment came in my first year of teaching, uh, as a, as a tenure track professor, um, I was, I took over a job from as a medievalist in a department where the guy who was retiring, who, whom I was replacing had been like a part-time medievalist. He'd done some medieval lit courses on the side, but they had decided when they hired me that they wanted to like do more medieval stuff uh, mm -hmm. uh, for their students. So the department chair said, we, we want you to create several new courses that you can offer. And I was like, awesome. That sounds great. So I'm like, oh yeah, I can do, I can do an Arthurian lit class. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to reconceive this class in that way. And then I had the moment when I was like, wait, I could teach a Tolkien class. That would be awesome. And I pitched it and the department chair said, okay. And I got pushback from other colleagues in the department, mm. especially from the modernist as a rule. 20th century lit scholars loathe Tolkien. Like hmm. you want to start a fist fight with an academic, go to a Joyce scholar and tell him that Tolkien is the best, is the greatest author of the 20th century. Uh, and uh, the bouncers are likely to, to kick you <laughs> in the street in five minutes. Now, why Tolkien is that? Why, why? I'm curious. I, this is a peek behind the curtain that I've never seen before. Oh, oh my goodness. The, yeah. Um, yeah. All like mainstream, like traditional 20th century academics, all will say James Joyce is the greatest author of the 20th century. Hmm. Um, like that's the like, I think it's not universal. Nothing is universal in academics. Mm -hmm. There are always some random people who will say, you know, something else, um, especially American lit people will put forward, you know, some other American uh, right. names and stuff. But anyway, the like the canonical uh, thing is that Joyce is the greatest author of the 20th century. Mm. Um, but of course, everyone is aware of the fact that Tolkien is the most popular author mm. of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and there has been a, th and it's, it's part of like the whole, the whole atmosphere, the whole approach, the, the whole bias, the like steeped deeply into the culture of the literature of modernism is like of the first half of the 20th century, mm -hmm. especially Brit lit, but even in America was this deep seated conviction that that which is popular is bad. Mm. You know, yeah. you can tell a great work by how little people understand. <laughs> like, if people can read it and get it and like it, it's obvious. It obviously sucks. Right. Yeah. And that's an oversimplification. <laughs> But it's not that much of an oversimplification. Right. Ezra Pound, who is one of the great movers of the modernist movement, you know, uh, he edited a whole bunch of, you know, literary journals and stuff, which had subtitles that said things like making no compromise with the public taste. Uh, <laughs> one of his taglines, you know, like it's just it's how it worked. Like it's it's how they thought it's what yeah. that culture was, you know, that literary culture. Um, and so a lot of that has, I think, kind of infected scholars who study that period mm. like they kind of in some ways unconsciously in some ways uh consciously i think yeah. basically sort of adopt that model and say like it, you know something that is a bestseller something that is mm -hmm. uh you know popular with the crowds is obviously that's like a strike against it clearly a yeah. strike against it. like it, it's not yeah it can't be great it's almost uh you know i i feel like that happens a lot in uh in films today i mean you look at all the the award yeah. nominees that's one of the reasons why you know, the uh, the Lord of the Rings series was kind of a uh, an outlier because yeah. it was so awarded and it was so popular. You know, typically 
um, even after they expanded the number of best picture nominees, it's still, you know, there's, there's been many years where I've not seen a single one of them Yeah, absolutely. because they don't look interesting to me, but absolutely. that's, absolutely. yeah, it's, it's no, an it, interesting phenomenon. It is, it is. And this is something, um, a really interesting, uh, um, one of the interesting, most interesting things I've read about this is actually an essay by C.S. Lewis, a literary essay by C.S. Lewis, um, in, in which he's he's asking the question, he's kind of approaching this question because it was still like a like basically why people feel like they have to apologize for reading, you know, popular like bestsellers, mm. right? Yeah. Um, you know, like you don't why you don't put like the late, you know, like. Why, why nobody puts like Twilight on their coffee table, you know, <laughs> right. like instead you would put like, you know, like, uh, you know, Ulysses by James Joyce on your coffee right. table and be like, see how yes. intellectual and sophisticated <laughs> we are. Nobody brags about reading or pe people sometimes even are like feel ashamed about reading popular books. Anyway, Lewis was talking about this phenomenon and, and trying to decide like what may, you know, when people say like, these are good books that are like, mm -hmm. you know, legit to read this is real literature and these are like they might be fun you know but they're not real literature mm -hmm. um and he was looking at how that changed over time yeah you know and he said the problem is is that some books which were definitely in one category at one point mm -hmm. um, like charles dickens charles dickens is a great example mm -hmm. he was absolutely street level pop culture right in the 1860s and 70s right um but nowadays he's a good book, right? Mm -hmm. You brag about reading Dickens nowadays, <laughs> right? Um, whereas you would not have bragged about it in the same way back, back in 1870, right? So what is it like? What is it that determines like whether it's a highbrow book or a lowbrow book? What is mm -hmm. it that that and why does it change over time? And the conclusion that he came to, I think he's right. The conclusion that he came to, he says the only common factor that you can see among all these things is difficulty. Mm -hmm. If it's hard to read, yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> If it's easy to read and you just enjoy the prize, you know, you just, it's just fun. If it's fun. Read, yeah. Then, then obviously it's, it can't be real. It can't be good. <laughs> and uh, when you actually back up and look at that, that's a really stupid way to categorize. Right. I mean, it's dumb. It's not, it's not right. It's, it's yeah. silly. Um, uh, a book that is, that is in fact easy to read and enjoyable to read may be for that reason, very skillfully written. Right. You know, I mean, there's yeah. something to admire there. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, just, so, I just saw someone in the comments say popularity plus time equals literature. <laughs> sometimes, like, often, yes. Yeah, I go. mean, the, the bad literature of three centuries ago is like only read by the most esoteric scholars yeah. these days. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in some cases, that's certainly the case. Um, um, it's because it's harder to read now because it's yeah. more removed from us in culture. It's more removed from us in vocabulary and diction. It's just, it's just harder. Yeah. Um, you know, Dickens is a hard read for some people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's his vocabulary is strange and different. His different, style yeah. is different and, you know, but in those days, again, it's what like your average person on the street was reading and how they were talking. So anyway, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a weird thing. But anyway, so this is why one of the reasons why, so because Tolkien is so popular, because Tolkien wins every single poll that was ever made about like, what is the most influential <laughs> book of the 20th century. Right. Um, but that's exactly why. So like, it's like they, the scholars, the 20th century scholars mm. feel like they need to circle the wagons, right? right? Because they, hit, oh man, like, and this was extremely pointed. It was 2004 when I started my, when I got a, my first tenure track job mm -hmm. and, um, uh, so right after like the turn of the millennium. So we were still like doing lots of like 
retroact retrospective polls and and mm -hmm. discussions mm -hmm. about what is the greatest of the 20th century now that it's over and stuff uh so they were particularly uh on edge about this because tolkien kept coming out again and again and again winning every single poll right. no matter who made it no matter how <laughs> they kept trying to do the polls in different ways to make it come out with a <laughs> tweak the result. verbiage yeah right exactly it always failed um uh but um uh anyway so uh and this is why so by the way when tom shippey the the, the great tolkien scholar published mm -hmm. the book J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century, he was mm -hmm. deliberately like <laughs> shoving it in the face of That's the fantastic uh, of, of, of all the other academics who 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 just hate that action so much. That anyway, awesome. so yeah, so the, uh, my modernist colleague attempted to discourage me from teaching the, my my Tolkien class, but I did it anyway, um, <laughs> and um, it may have something to do with the fact that. Uh, uh, well, I won't say uncharitable things about his enrollments, but uh, it, it was, let's just say the Tolkien class was a little bit more popular. A little bit popular, yeah. Uh, and um, anyway, so there were, there were issues there. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, so that's how it ended up happening. So I, I, how did I come to be called the Tolkien professor? That was an accident. So <laughs> I decided that I wanted to start a podcast. Um just because I had started publishing on Tolkien, doing scholarly stuff officially on Tolkien, um, you know, publishing so that I didn't perish and stuff as a junior faculty member. And, um, but I decided it was kind of lame. <laughs> it's, but actually, yeah, that was kind of what it was. Cause I was like, look, you publish something in a scholarly journal, scholarly publication means nobody can read it basically. Mm -hmm. Like that's what it means. Um, because to publish something in a scholarly journal means that it's it's set aside like nobody has access to that like mm. they're enormously expensive so like only research libraries have copies of the things that so I'm like there's it just felt to me dumb I'm like why am why would I spend all my time working on Tolkien and publishing things on Tolkien which like nobody can get access to or only a very small number of people can get access to mm -hmm. when I feel like there's a whole lot of people out there who would be really interested in Tolkien as you know as you've seen there's a large audience of folks yeah. who are really passionate about Tolkien. Um, and I had a vague sense of that, though I didn't, um, um, I didn't even, uh, um, I, I underestimated it at the time. I mean, at the time, and I remember talking to my department chair and I'm like, I bet you there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people <laughs> who would be interested in this. And then I, so I, I experimented and I released, you know, a lecture series in a podcast instead of, you know, publishing stuff uh, yeah. in a scholarly journal. And I had like, you know, 10,000 followers within the first, like, you know, month or so. Right. And I'm like, Hey, okay. even more. <laughs> okay. So, um, but, um, but yeah, so, so when I was first coming, so I was making a website and I was naming the podcast and I was like, all right, I want something that's going to be like truth in advertising. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, cause I'm a professor, so I'm going to be lecturing now. Like mm -hmm. I want people to understand that that's what, you know, that that's what they're getting, you know, when they click on this or something. And I want it to be clear. So I'm like, okay, Tolkienprofessor.com. Like that's pretty simple, right? I'm yeah. a professor I'm talking about Tolkien. That's going to be good. So my podcast, I'll call it the Tolkien professor. Um, what I didn't anticipate was that people would start using that as a title. Right. Mm. Like, and they, and right away it started happening. People were like, <laughs> Hey, I'm listening to the Tolkien professor. And I'm like, Oh wait, that's really bad. And my colleague <laughs> have been giving me a hard time about this for a decade now. Um, Mike Drought. I don't know if you know Mike Drought's work. Uh, Tolkien scholar. He's a wonderful uh, Tolkien scholar. Nice, Anglo Saxon. Familiar. 
Yeah. Uh, he, he's awesome. Um, he teases me every single time. Like every, uh, when we had him at Mythmoot, the annual conference that Sigma mm -hmm. hosts. Um, and so I was on a panel with him and he starts off and he's like, can I just say what an honor it is to get to sit next to the Tolkien the. professor. Uh, he always brags me about the definite article. Uh, and I'm like, there are lots of other people, professors who do yeah. Tolkien. Not saying I'm the only one or the definitive one. Uh, so yeah, I might have planned that differently if I'd anticipated that. But uh, anyway, that's funny. Um, so when uh, one of my friends, when when I was toying with the idea of starting this YouTube channel, um, I was firing off some names, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of digging Nerd of the Rings. Like I get called a nerd a lot." And right, this right. friend, this friend goes, "Well, what? A, you know, do you want it to sound more academic? Like, what if you called?" called it the Tolkien professor. I'm like, dude, that's been taken for so long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm no, like, and B, I'm not a professor. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So we've we've covered, you know, we've talked about the Amazon show. We've talked about the movies a little bit, talked about the books, obviously. Um so another thing that you're really big into is uh on the gaming side is yeah. Lord of the Rings online. Yeah. You actually do a regular um, live stream. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me, so I, I am in the unique situation where I've, I've dabbled in Lord of the Rings online in previous years, but I made the mistake of updating my iMac like two years ago and then I couldn't play it. So I yep. never actually got into it. So as a newbie, what advice would you give? Cause right now I feel, I feel like, you know, if you haven't gotten into it, it can be kind of daunting to think like, this it's thing's enormous. been out. Yeah, it's this enormous. thing's enormous. Like, what yeah. what advice do you have for me as a newbie getting into Lord of the Rings Online? Um, so, general comment on Lord of the Rings Online: it is a gorgeous adaptation of Tolkien's world, and I mean that in every sense. It's it's artistically gorgeous. I love the what they've done with the world of Middle Earth uh, there. Um, I have been. Every time I, I've met the uh, folks at Standing Stone, the makers of the game, a bunch mm -hmm. of times, as it happens, they actually are their home base is about an hour away from me. They're oh, up here cool. in Massachusetts, so I've been down to their studio several times, um, and I'll sometimes do like we'll do like little um, you know podcast episodes and stuff, mm -hmm. basically with the you know we'll sit around and chat. Um, but anyway, whenever I meet them, whenever I talk to them, I always say the same thing. I'm like, tourist mode, please enable. <laughs> mode like i you know i would love to be able to get people to just um and you know to enable folks to just get in the game and walk around without worrying about getting slaughtered you know by the mobs on the land in the landscape you know um uh, because of course not only not only are there lots of you know enemies that you've got to fight uh, mm -hmm. but if you're really low level like you know the the different areas of course are are, are ranked but you know it's it's mm -hmm. sort of linear exactly but it right. is progressed uh so you know you get to gondor gondor is a, a level like uh, 105 mm. uh landscape uh so like uh the 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 deer in the landscape are level 105 right oh man uh, and, and so like <laughs> the more under level you are the more aggressive mm. the the creatures are so i actually had the first time i went to um because I, I i even i don't i i've been playing for years I don't play that much. I don't, I don't get much time. I mean, honestly, right now I pretty much play when I'm on my live stream and I don't really get much of a chance to play else. Yeah. Uh, otherwise. Um, so I'm going through the game really, really slowly. Um, and so therefore they actually have been producing 
new extensions and new content faster than I've been able to play it. They're you like, they're pulling it. away from me, basically. <laughs> um, uh, but so anyway, so I'm always under level. Like my highest character is always still under level, but I always want to see the new things when they come out. So sometimes mm -hmm. I'll get, um, you know, higher level characters will help me. You know, they'll, they'll like <laughs> transport me to, uh, to the spot and I'll get a tour of places and stuff. But I remember do they the bodyguard you. <laughs> yeah, they totally do. And it's hard work. Like they're like, uh, there'll be like a net of, uh, like max level characters, like trying to like kill all the things <laughs> that are charging into attempt to kill me. Um, uh, and I don't make it easier because I'm one. I'm like, oh, look at this over there. And I'm running over there to look at this thing. And they're like, wait, you know, anyway, it's, it's always fun. Um, but um, uh, I remember the first time I went to Hennetha Noon when they had just released Athelion. I'm like, I want to see Hennetha Noon. I want to see the the the, uh, the 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 waterfall and everything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I got to Hennetha Noon and I went down the tunnel uh, into Hennetha Noon. And I was almost all the way down the tunnel. And I was about to get to the waterfall when a doe from the landscape, pursued me down the tunnel and killed me. <laughs> like, Holy cow. Anyway, like that's the kind of thing that I get. It's just, it's the way the game mechanics work. Yeah. And it's fine. But, um, um, but it's, um, uh, but yeah, tourist mode. I wish they had tourist mode. Like, mm. just like, you know, make you unkillable, unnoticeable by the mobs. You, you can't you do wander. any quests. You can just wander. Just, just sightseeing. Just, yeah. just look at surroundings and see Middle Earth. Um, so I've been arguing for that for years, and they haven't yeah. done it yet. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are reasons that I don't. I mean, I, I'm not a you know game creator, game so developer, I'm sure they're yeah. harder than I think it is. But, um, uh, but anyway, um, so uh, uh, but it's a it's a really cool world. But not only is it gorgeous artistically, and they've done a really really good job, they are really careful readers of the text. I have mm -hmm. great admiration for their lore people. Um, uh, the, the, the lore masters down there at, uh, uh, at Standing Stone. Chris Pearson has been their chief lore master from the very beginning of the project. Um, he's come and he's spoken at Mythmood also too before. Um, uh, uh, he and uh, 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 Jeff, uh, Made of Lions as he's uh, called, uh, his username and game. Um, they are they're wonderful both of them are wonderful he's uh made of lions uh jeff is the um the like the main storyline guy the main going mm -hmm. you know quest storyline guy uh and um um uh uh chris is the is the main you know overall lore guy yeah they do such a wonderful job um and uh they read the text really carefully. Whenever I go to a new area that I've never seen before in Lotro, the first thing I do, like, there's always something like it'll spark like a memory of a particular detail mm -hmm. of the text. And I'll always go looking for it. Um, so like for <laughs> uh, the, the first thing that I noticed when I got to Frodo's house at Crick Hollow, right? Mm -hmm. is that you know, When you get to Frodo's house in Crick, the first thing that you'll see is there is a torn cloak lying on the doorstep. And I'm like, oh, perfect. Wow. There's a torn cloak on the door. Just exactly as Gandalf described it was there. Like the attention to detail is really, wow. really good. The first time I went to Tom Bombadil's house, the very first thing I did, I didn't go inside. I ran around the back of the house to see if there are rows of beans on poles outside the back window mm. that Frodo <laughs> sees when he wakes up and looks at <laughs> the back window. And there are. They put beans on wow. poles in the back like, Really, really careful attention to detail. I'm not saying it's perfect. There, there are some places where, you know, because obviously, just like we were talking about with movies, mm -hmm. when you're doing game adaptations, there's a lot of things that you've got to mm -hmm. 
that you've got to change that you've got to yeah. make uh you know uh to, to alter in some ways um in order to make the whole game world function and right. everything it can't just be a one to one exactly yeah. exactly but they are very very careful and the storylines that they develop are very very good i love the narrative of the story the live stream that i'm doing i do the my live stream so um my Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash SignumU. That's the SignumU Twitch channel. And I, I sometimes do do stuff there. Um, my weekly stream is on the Lotro official Twitch channel, um, mm. uh, Twitch uh, cool. slash Lotro stream. Um, but um, it's on Friday afternoons at, what is it? Two, I should, I should know what time <laughs> I meant to one o'clock. I think it's one o'clock. Yes. One PM Eastern uh, is when I begin. Uh, Phil, who is one of the people who's here in the chat, I see him is my, uh, 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 my, my, my lore master who takes questions and makes sure that I see the questions that people oh, ask cool. and be laughing at me that I can't remember what time it starts. <laughs> what time? <laughs> He's about to say that that explains why I'm uh, so often late, but anyway, um, <laughs> uh, at my stream, um, uh, my weekly live stream, I'm going through and I'm basically doing a completionist trip through the storyline, like doing every mm. quest and following every story um, because I am so interested in how they adapt, uh, how they adapt the stories. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, when you're doing a game, you have more even much more even than in a film. When you're doing a film, there's so many things that you show that aren't explicitly said in the book. Right. right. So there are decisions you have to make that the book doesn't have to make mm -hmm. um, uh, all over the place. In the game, it's even more detailed because of the dilation of time, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, for instance, my character, uh, whose name is Grifflet, uh, he's a hobbit burglar named Grifflet, and he uh, he's traveling around Rohan right now. He's been doing Rohan for a while. And um, you're traveling ar around Rohan at the time, like, right, right before and right after Wormtongue has been exposed. Okay. Yeah. So... Basically, what they have to do is not only flesh out, like, what are the different cities and towns and areas in Rohan like? What do the towns look like? What are the cultures like? What are, you know, uh, what's the difference, you know, in the the landscape and feel and culture of like the wold versus the Westfold and, you know, all these other things. So it's, it's not only that they, they do that bit of world building for one thing. Um, but then in addition, what's the story in each of those mm -hmm. places? Like, you know, what is, what has Wormtongue been up to? What kinds of decrees, you know, Wormtungian decrees yeah. have come from the various places and how are the different thanes and reeves of the, of the way responding and mm -hmm. what kind of conflicts is this creating? Who's on Wormtongue's side and who's not on Wormtongue's side and, and, and how are they not and what are they doing? And, and so in each place, you're sort of discovering these things and you're, you know, helping the different people. Um, so, yeah, again, even in a film, you'd just get a, like a, a glimpse of this, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, in the game, you're going around and you're, you're like doing all these. You've got yeah. like 15 quests in one town and then you go to yeah. the next town, you get 15 more quests in the next town. And they're all like kind of theoretically parallel, right? So that mm -hmm. that moment, that like in the two, you know, month before Wormtongue is exposed, but when his power is at its peak, that moment gets dilated over you know, hours and hours and hours of gameplay in multiple different places all across Rohan. Wow. Um, it's really, really fascinating. So 
I'm just oh, so imagining Chris's office being like the meme with like the conspiracy theory stuff, you know, that's what I'm imagining with all the strings and stuff. <laughs> it's really complicated. It's very complicated with, um, um, uh, it's it's very complicated with uh, the timelines, especially mm. because it, yeah. it, it got really difficult for them because they parallel the PC play to the story of the ring. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. fundamental premise of Lotro is that you're playing a character, but you're not playing one. Of, you know, it's not like, you know, you're one of those off or something. Yeah. Exactly. It's not like one of those old console games or something where you're like, play Frodo and like mm -hmm. go through the quest. Like, it's not like that. So you create your own character. And your character is a side, um, a side, uh, like a, a peripheral character mm -hmm. like of the whole thing. So your job is not to go with the company. Your job is to like go around the company and they, <laughs> they are brilliant at, um, they, they are brilliant at finding ways to tie it into explicit mm -hmm. references in the text. Uh, one of my favorite examples from earlier, early in the book, you may remember that, um, uh, when they get to Rivendell, right? So in the first chapter of book two, uh, mm -hmm. many meetings, right? When they get to Rivendell um, uh, and then after the council, we're told that they're there for a long time, like right? And while, they're there, right? Yeah. Yeah. and while they're there, they're sending scouts out and everything. Mm -hmm. well, that's a whole quest line, right? You're one yeah. of the scouts who gets sent out ah. to like explore things. And remember that reference to how they, they found the bodies of eight horses, right? Mm. Uh-huh ninth horse that's a quest right yeah. it's a good quest uh that you got to go on to find like well we got to yeah. you know did one of them escape is one of them still around like you know what's going <laughs> on I, you know we we, we got to make sure to get to the bottom of this right um, they, they do a lot of things like that where they're really Very brilliant at connecting it to the story so like you actually appear in the story not by name right but you actually appear in the books uh, another one of my favorite examples of this is um uh Theoden calls for his sword Right. Mm. Um, and he's like, where is my sword? You know, Grima held it in his keeping and somebody, somebody Has runs out. It. <laughs> sword and brings it back. You do that. Like the nice. PC gets to sign the quest to go to Grima's uh, house and like go through his chest and, and locate uh, the sword. sword and bring it back to him. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a fun adaptation. They're, they're really, really good at, um, uh, at the, the attention that they pay to the text, mm -hmm. the depth of adaptation of the story. Um, and uh, I just have a, a huge respect for, uh, for what they've done. Um, their adaptation, even of the landscape is interesting. Um, you know, even just looking at the, um, the, the kinds of history that they build. I've spent a mm. lot of time in Lotro just going around and looking like at the ruins mm, in Eridor, yeah. like, yeah. around Bree. And from the ruins, which you can see, these are Arnorian ruins because they've got the Numenorian symbols on the Star of the North, right? Yeah. So, okay. Um, and then so we can, we, you can kind of piece together the whole back history of not only the kingdom of Arnor, but like the Arnorian civil wars being like, oh, there's the Rudauer symbol. So, okay. Mm. So this was a Rudauran castle at <laughs> one point, um, you know, based just based on, on where they've placed all the ruins and stuff. It, again, a lot of real attention to detail. So as far as for a newbie person, yeah, there are like hundreds and hundreds of potential hours of gameplay oh, for um, sure. that, that you can do. But if you go through, there's the Epic quest line and then there's like side quests. Mm -hmm. If you stick to the Epic quest line, you can do this. Um, uh, and you can do it. You don't have to be like, you know, you, you can, you can pay a subscription to be a VIP member. You can play mm -hmm. for free. 
Um, you can play for free and play the whole Epic Quest line. So, mm. you know, it's not required to be a VIP. I mean, obviously, there's some things that make it easier if you're a VIP. Right. Uh, but um, but you can play the whole Epic as, the whole Epic line as as a as a free to play, um, and uh, and that gives you sort of the core story that goes along in parallel with uh, um, with the, the main yeah. plot uh, of the Lord of the Rings uh, with some extra stuff mm -hmm. uh, worked in, like the exploration of Moria, for instance. Mm. Um, they did all of Moria. It's huge That's in the amazing. game. Uh, <laughs> you can even go down and find. Gandalf's hat at the bottom of the cat <laughs> where he fell with the bell. Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, I, I am definitely looking forward to it. I, that's one of the, um, when I upgraded my computer recently, I switched to PC and one of the things I was most excited about was, yep. uh, breaking out my, my character on Lotro again, um, and really diving into it. My, for, for the record, my character is a dwarf and his name is killed him. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm excited to get get killed them out and go kill them orcs. <laughs> right, right. Well, I I know we're we're running short on time here. I know uh, we gotta we gotta get wrapping up. So I've got some rapid fire questions for sure. you, and right. hopefully, you know, maybe someday we can unpack these further in a future live stream. But I'll I'll, I'll throw some rapid fire questions at you. Um, what age do you think is the most interesting of Middle Earth? <sighs> I have to say the second. Primarily mm. because there's so little written about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the second age is like the great untold story in Tolkien's world. And mm. so for that there, for me, it's extremely tantalizing and very interesting for that reason. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it's hard to choose first age and third age. There's so much and they're so awesome. But yeah, if I had to go with like what I find most fascinating, I think the second age uh, okay. because it's so unknown. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, what is your favorite Tolkien book? Favorite book. Okay, let's see. If we say favorite thing that Tolkien wrote, I think my favorite thing that Tolkien wrote, I mean, you know, The Lord of the Rings is his great work. Like, mm -hmm. you know, but that's, you know, cheating. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing is Leaf by Niggle. Mm. I would say. Okay. Leaf by Niggle is my favorite of Tolkien. My non, you know, uh, non Lord of the Rings category. Uh, my favorite thing written by Tolkien is Leaf by Niggle. I love it's a, one of his short stories. I love Leaf by Niggle. Great. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a fun one. Um, do Balrogs have wings? No, definitely not. Absolutely not. Under no circumstances do Balrogs have wings. Um, that's explicit in the text. Um, uh, the the wings of the it's a metaphor. It's mm -hmm. a metaphor. First, he uses a simile: the shadow spread out behind him, like, like two wings. Yeah. Then after that, he metaphorically says, and his wings, that is the yeah. shadow that mm -hmm. was like wings spread out around him. But he obviously doesn't have wings because if he did, he probably wouldn't have plummeted down. Right. <laughs> uh, Balrogs, of course, are always plummeting off of high places in Tolkien's mm -hmm. story, which is a very peculiar thing for winged creatures to end up yeah. doing. <laughs> Uh, what's more, it's even more explicit in the non Lord of the Rings stuff. I mean, we'll get that one glimpse of the Balrog, which has that one very famous simile and mm -hmm. metaphor in it. Um, but it is extremely explicit. One of Melkor's biggest restrictions in the first stage was that he had no air force. Mm. Um, and uh, the Balrogs are very plainly and explicitly his, they are his heavy infantry. They are yeah. his, his, his heavy ground troops. Um, which is why it's such a big deal when the War of Wrath, when the winged dragons Dragon show up. 
completely yeah. big deal. Exactly. Cause it's the first time uh, Melkor ever had anything winged. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's so it's fair. It's not a debate. Like there's no, yeah. there, there really can't be two opinions on this subject. Like it's very clear that Balrogs don't have wings, but I will give one caveat. I totally understand artists who depict, you know, the bridge of Khazad doom mm-hmm. always want the Balrog wings. And I get it. The Balrog looks so much it looks more cool. Awesome. Yeah. It's like wings are cool. Yeah. cool. Winged Balrogs look way cooler than unring- unwinged Balrogs. Like I totally respect that. So I'm not going to, you know, harsh on any artist. Like John yeah. Howe always depicts a very explicitly winged Balrog. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I get it. I get it. But it's yeah. not, um, it's, it's, that's, they, no, they don't have yeah. wings. Okay. I'm glad we, I, I'm on the same page. I've always had that. Uh, I, I think I listened to uh, a podcast one time where that was brought up. Yeah. And so ever since then, I've been a convert. I'm like, okay, my eyes have been opened. They don't have wings. wings. So next question, who is Tom Bombadil and what is your favorite theory? I know we oh. don't have like a finite answer. We don't, we don't. Um, but I also don't think he meant Tom Bombadil to be like an utter mystery either. Mm-hmm. You know, so Tom Bombadil clearly based upon his own account, he clearly, he's not one of the children of Iluvatar, right? So he's not mm-hmm. a man. He's not an elf. He's not, he predates elves, obviously. Right. Which means there's, he's got to be one of the Ainur who came into Middle-earth. Like he has to be. Um, he remembers, um, uh, I mean, he, he remembers like he came, he was in middle earth before Melkor came into right. it. Right? Yeah. There's just, there's not a large cast of characters. There's like the mm-hmm. Ainur at all at that point. So he must be one of the Ainur. Um, he's not one of the Valar or one of their Maiar, you know, one of the Maiar who are kind of like, you know, the, you know, the sort of lesser servants of the Valar. Yeah. Yeah, the assistance of the, of the, of the Valar. He's not one of them, um, but he's one of them also in a different, I mean, he's, he's, he's a free agent basically, <laughs> but that same class, I don't think there can be an, I mean, within the world as Tolkien right. defined, it's only so many things he can be. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's that mysterious, but he is mysterious in the sense that he is the, the one that we meet. There are, I believe in Tolkien's world, many spirits like this, mm-hmm. many kind of free agent spirits who are attached to middle earth who are kind of manifest who are geographically restricted uh mm-hmm. like spirits of the land karathras is another one right karathras mm-hmm. exists too um i don't think that's just a you know a, a way of talking about the weather right i mean right. there is a spirit of karathras um so anyway and and it's it seems from other writings that tolkien was thinking in that way actually quite um like goldberry she's the yeah. daughter of the river right and All i yeah, it's and w- one of uh, one of the ones that I recently discovered that I've liked, like just dropping on people and say, "Hey, Google this," um, is uh, Baldog the uh, the orc that's yeah. a, a Maiar, but yeah, yeah. but it, it disguised as an orc, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. So yeah, I, I I'm with you there. Yeah. Um. Okay, I don't but think we have time a, to get. What, go ahead. That's a fun theory. I know there are a lot of people who like to think that Tom Bombadil is a Luvatar in disguise. Mm, yeah. Totally not Luvatar. Yeah. And that Tolkien explicitly addressed that. I mean, yes. like he talked about that. Um, and his argument was, of course, very, a very good one. You know, he was like, he, she said he is 
which is very different. He is, is very different from I am that I am, which is what mm -hmm. primarily, you know, the identity of the name of God is I am, right. uh, is primarily what people kind of latch onto when yes. they're making that yeah. connection. And Tolkien was like, yeah, no, that's not mm -hmm. even what that says. Like it's, yeah. Um, it, it, he, he's not only opposing and saying, that's not what I meant. He's saying that's a bad reading of that right. passage. Yeah. And here are the reasons <laughs> why it's a bad reading of that passage. So, yeah. And, and he's also not Tolkien himself. I've had a lot of people comment asking right. me if he's right. Tolkien himself and that he, he also directly refuted that one, I believe as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you know, you could say it almost indirectly in the sense that like he really liked Tom Bombadil and Tom mm -hmm. Bombadil represents a lot of things that he really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, he's, he is a, a separate, strange, independent entity. Um, and that's how Tolkien kind of wanted him to be. But I mean, I can't blame the people who want to know the answer to this mm -hmm. question. Oh yeah. Because kind of the kind of world that Tolkien has built and, and went on to build and to intensify is exactly the kind of world where there should be answers to these questions. <laughs> so you can't blame people for asking it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So my last question here, um, I, I, I had a couple others regarding whether or not taking the Eagles to Mordor, but we'll save that for another time because I think we could go on for a while on that one. Yeah, so definitely. Tolkien professor versus Stephen Colbert, who would win <laughs> in a trivia contest? Oh man. Uh, you know, I, he might win because first of all, Stephen Colbert is a legit fan. Like he knows oh, his for stuff. Sure. And you know, I think uh, he is way quicker witted than I am. So he would probably <laughs> win in a debate. Um, people have been wanting to set up a debate between me and St Stephen Colbert for like a decade. Really? Um, I, uh, he listens to my podcast, by the way, I've had several like very indirect interactions with him. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, um, I know he listens to my podcast uh, and what I would love, I don't want to debate with him. I just want right. to geek out with him. I just oh, want to sure. have like a session where we just kind of like talk about Tolkien and, and like, you know, give him a chance on his show. Cause he's never had that. Like, you know, he's, mm. he's never, he's almost never had a guest whom he could really like discuss Tolkien with in the way that he always wants to talk right. about Tolkien. So that's what I would want to do. I don't, so let's just discuss, let's not debate. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I think he would, he might possibly win, but it would be fun if, if, uh, if debating him is what would have to happen in order to like, to, you know, for, to, to have him be, have me be on his show. I'd do, do a <laughs> I'd trivia. Do yeah. The trivia contest. Yeah. I've, right. I've heard, I, I, I had, uh, Stephen Hunter who played Bomber in the Hobbit movies. He was, yeah. um, you know, we, I, I had heard before that, uh, um, Stephen had gone down to New Zealand and had a trivia contest, uh, down there with, uh, was it, uh, Philippa Boyens? Boyens yeah. 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 And, uh, I had always heard like, it was a mystery who won, but Stephen Hunter right. totally ratted him out and said that Stephen Colbert totally oh, yeah. won it. That surprised um, me. For two yeah. reasons that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, I, and I know, you know, Stephen Colbert of course has become more and more heavily entrenched in the political realm in, mm, in late yeah. years. Um, uh, you know, and I, I don't want anything to do with the political realm, right. but, uh, but on a you know, pure discussion, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it, I, I, I really, whatever anyone thinks about him for political reasons. And I, I you know, I have no opinion on those things. Right. Um, but I, I, he's, he is a, he is a, a true fan. You know, he yeah. is, he knows his stuff really well. Yeah. I, that would, that would be a great, yeah. I would, I would definitely sign up to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to listen to the two of you geek out and, uh, 
just be a fly on the wall in that conversation. That would be amazing. It would be um, fun. Yeah. Well, Corey, thank you so much for uh, for joining us here today, doing some uh, Q and A and just uh, talking Tolkien. Um, hopefully, we can do this again sometime, and uh, we'll definitely have a a lot of. Uh, stuff to look forward to with the amazon show and um i mean we even we didn't even talk about we've got a new tolkien book coming out that later this year um yeah. so we've we've got some exciting stuff on the horizon so mm -hmm. um yeah so uh tell us real quick um for everybody watching here how they can uh find you um your podcast and yeah, uh yeah, yeah go, plug it everything a different i kind of sloppily uh i publish my stuff in lots of different places so people can get it in lots of places. <clears throat> my 13 year old son tells me I'm doing YouTube wrong, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. So uh, uh, you can, the best place you can go to get, um, uh, to get my content is the Signum university YouTube page. Um, I, a lot of my stuff is there. Um, I do a bunch of weekly live broadcasts. Um, well, I've got four, different programs. Um, one of which is every other week and the other three of which are every week. Um, so, uh, I do those, all of those get posted to my, to our YouTube channel. Um, either they're broadcast live on our YouTube channel or, or they get posted there right afterwards. There are also audio podcast feeds for people who want to do the audio podcast. Look us up, uh, Tolkien professor, um, exploring the Lord of the Rings. My exploring the Lord of the Rings class is a separate, um, a separate thing. Um, and then there, uh, a separate feed. And then there's the Mythgard Academy, which is another separate feed. Um, one of the other broadcasts I do. Um, so there's lots of, um, there's lots of, lots of content out there. You know, I, I just recently did that YouTube, uh, video with wired. Um, right. Yeah. People watched. And so there are a whole bunch of people who were kind of, you know, learned about my stuff for the first time. So I was getting a lot of stuff on Twitter because my, my Twitter account was, uh, was posted and you can reach out to me on Twitter uh, at Tolkien prof. Twitter is kind of my primary uh, social media because I'm old. Um, so <laughs> uh, Twitter is what I primarily do. Um, and uh, anyway, so um, on, on Twitter, I'm getting a bunch of people reaching out to me and being like, Hey, is there any more of your content I can find? And I'm like, make sure you're sitting down because <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> thousand hours of material. So there's plenty. Um, but the thing about the YouTube channel that I, is I always refer people to the YouTube channel first um, because it's set out in different playlists. So you can see it in, mm. in different chunks. There's some really long running uh, programs like the film film thing we were talking about before, like mm -hmm. exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, there's also um, single book discussions that I've done, like through the Mythgard mm -hmm. Academy where I, you know, you can look at my, you know, um, I don't remember how many it was, 14 or 15 uh, class sessions, chapter by chapter through the book of lost tales, you know, or whatever. Um, so it's a little bit easy. And also we did other non-Tolkien stuff there. You can look at my class on Dune or Watership Down or Dracula. Oh, um, cool. So all of this stuff is there. So YouTube channel is definitely the best place to start. And if you want to contact me or ask me a question, Twitter is the best place to reach out at Tolkien Prof. Very cool. Well, thank you again, Corey. This has been a lot of fun. And uh yeah, we will see you guys next time. Um, be sure to go uh, check out Tolkien Professor, check out Signum University uh, here on YouTube, and we'll see you next time on Nerd of the Rings. Thanks so much for listening to this audio podcast of Nerd of the Rings. To get the latest Middle-Earth-related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerdofthering's. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. 
To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerdofthe rings. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nerd of the Rings.